You are listening to MSP 1337. I'm your host, Chris Johnson, and I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, first and foremost, I'd like to thank our sponsor, MSP Ignite. MSP Ignite offers a peer group experience that is unique to managed service providers in the technology industry. If you are serious about implementing a model for success through sharing and collaboration of best practices, this is the best way to do it. Head on over to msp-ignite.com to get more information. All right, on to the show. Welcome everybody to this episode of MSP 1337. I'm joined again this week by Corey Munson of PCmatic. Welcome, Corey. Chris, great to be with you. Hey, so it's it's funny, and we were talking about this earlier. Our world is shrinking in the circles that you and I have been been navigating as of late. And so uh, you've met uh, obviously Izzy. Uh, who I've known now for, oh, geez, man, at least a decade. Uh, he was actually a client uh, of a company that I sold. So that's how I, I got to know Izzy. And but just talking about like the some of the events that you've been at and having heard some of the same speakers, um, what is actually happening in our space right now? And one of the things that um, you and I were talking about earlier is cyber insurance. And we talk about it largely on our show in the context of MSPs having cyber insurance and uh, how businesses, cyber insurance world is changing, expectations of what goes into those uh, uh, policies is changing. Um, but very specifically, I was at a uh, great, great, or sorry, AEA meetup in April, and we were all talking about insurance renewals for school districts. And I know you and I've talked about this a little bit before. But what I wanted to talk about today is the cyber insurance world is changing. And I think the K-12 space has been a little bit behind the curve as far as how quickly these lengthy questionnaires of are you using 2FA and some other things getting put on their plate has happened, but now it's being accelerated. So uh, I'm looking at for our own district here, needing to be able to satisfy a questionnaire that I'm, that I'm actually meeting on next week. And so I wanted to talk to you uh, about this from the perspective of the K-12 organizations that are faced with you know, cyber insurance renewals coming up and hopefully they'll have cyber insurance policies. But I think one of the fears that many tech directors have had and just conversations that I've had with them is this is going to be a daunting task because I don't have the clout or authority to just go to my administration and say, we're doing these eight things or 10 things and, and have someone say, yeah, well, our teachers just aren't gonna do 2FA well, then we're not going to have insurance. So I thought I would hit you up and just started to ask, the first question would be, are you seeing this as well, you know, as a vendor, you know, specializing in the space of securing endpoints, what are you guys seeing? You've been to a lot of shows recently. This, this isn't a new conversation. Is it, is it elevating? Is it becoming like a lot of noise is happening now because of the way uh, carriers are asking for new uh, answers to questions that maybe were never asked before? Yes, to all of the above. Um, um, well, it was just it, one question. It's not like multiple <laughs> choice. So, so full transparency, you know, I'm, I'm no expert in the, in the subject, but man, it, it's something I've tracked very closely just out of cu curiosity and interest and sure. as it relates to our customers. Um, 
because it's confusing, right? Some of these questions are like, so do you have 2FA enabled on your Cisco switch? And you're like, I don't know if my switch supports 2FA. It does not support 2FA. I can, now I got to answer no to the question, right? So let's back up a second. I mean, one of the things I, I find fascinating is, so we've seen now a shift from, and this is from talking to people inside the insurance industry, where you could get a sizable policy, cybersecurity policy, um, with a questionnaire of one or two items. And if you maybe uh, check one or two of those, you, you got the policy, you know, two or three years yeah. ago. And you got a free t-shirt and it really seemed like, wow, this seems really inexpensive for what they're covering me for. It, exactly. And in the sudden shift, and, and let's not kid ourselves, the shift is being dictated by the fact these insurance companies are paying out a lot of ransom and it's right. no longer economically feasible. Uh, well, to, some of them even are removing the offering altogether. A absolutely. You've got active war exclusions. I mean, you've got any number of variables there. But the, the dramatic switch now to a long, lengthy list of obligations or qualifications to get a policy is, is stunning. I saw just this week, and I, I don't think I had seen it at this level before, examples of a questionnaire that included uh, particular vendors that were recommended to, to yeah. qualify for a particular Yeah, you can, you can choose from one of these, and it was like two or three choices. Exactly. And the, the presentation I saw just this week suggested um, that three or four of the vendors uh, would actually qualify you for better premiums in some cases. And there's no, nobody seems to want to disclose which of those vendors um, are, are getting, getting you the best uh, premium there. Well, and but even that's if the they level did, of detail it's at now. Even yeah. if it does, I mean, like, I'll just throw this out there right now. You and I have both seen enough vendors, you know, have them themselves dragged through the mud because of something that happened within their organization that, that anybody who's in our space knows that it's not because of who it was. So me making a, a decision to just go to a different vendor isn't going to really change the stakes or probability of it happening again. And I think that's one of the areas where I think these cyber insurance uh, carriers are, are missing the boat, that it's, it's not about who the vendor is necessarily. Um, I don't want to downplay that too much. I think there is some merit to it. There, the KPIs are real, uh, but are we creating a perfect storm by saying, I'm dictating to you, use one of these three or four to get a better premium, which goes back to, if you can just answer the 10 questions in this questionnaire, regardless of whether or not you're telling the truth or not, and we issue you a policy, uh, you know, everybody loses if we're not all coming in and participating in, in actually achieving what's being asked of us. Right. And I think there's some concern that there's not a lot of consistency either on these questionnaires. I mean, they're, they're varying from carrier to carrier. So, right, right. Um, and, and, and not just necessarily carrier to carrier. I've even seen it where different agents representing multiple carriers are using one questionnaire that someone else is not using, but they're both representing the same underwriter. Right. And they're not even using consistent questionnaires for the same underwriter. Right. Exactly. Let me, it, this is probably a curveball from where we were, were headed, but, but here are the, the other things I've been tracking related to insurance that I think are really interesting cybersecurity wise is within the last month, Polk County, Iowa, right here at home for you and myself, 
opted to not take out a new special cybersecurity insurance policy because they thought it would increase the potential for being attacked. I mean, let's let's step back and think about that that for a while. And there's there's always been this undercurrent of speculation that I like um, that. If if I have if I have cybersecurity insurance, am I making myself a bigger target? We know if you dig into the Conti leaks, right, and and look through some of that documentation, that when they do data exfiltration, they're scanning for keywords like policy and terms and insurance and underwriting. They want to understand who right. the, who they're attacking and and does that victim potentially have insurance? What's the policy? What's the policy coverage? Because I've heard firsthand accounts of ransom negotiations that halfway through the ransomware gang produced the cover sheet for an insurance policy that said, we know exactly what you're covered for. We're going to bump up our ransom dip demand to meet that number. And don't tell us you can't pay it because we know you have the insurance. So let's let's throw that into some context that's not cybersecurity. So when I had my MSP, we were sued. Uh, I got, we got the phone call like on Christmas Eve, like, Hey, we're suing you. And, and it was one of those things where it's like, if you don't produce X amount of dollars, this is the lawsuit. And I don't remember the actual dollar amount of when the threat came along, but it basically was to this extent that one of the guys in their organization who liked us, I guess, reached out and said, dude, just turn this over to your insurance company and be done with it. It's no big deal. You know, and then of course it spiraled from there. But the interesting thing was the incident or the event that they were claiming that took place actually happened two days before or a week before our insurance kicked in Mm. for our company. So like insurance isn't going to pay this, right? So there's two sides, I think, to this coin on insurance and whether or not data gets scraped. It says you have policy X that covers and you should pay this because I think about things like, okay, what about car insurance? What about, you know, property insurance? Uh, you know, if, if I have property insurance and you're, you know, let's use a cyber attack as an example, and you you managed to, you know, maybe get my hot water heater to explode and cause severe flood damage you know, yay, or am I committing fraud, right? Like, there's so many things that you could think of that would like, yeah, we, we know you have coverage for this. The reality is, I think on a policy where to, to say you're not going to get insurance, um, that's confusing to me, because I think having a policy in place isn't so that you have to pay a ransom. It's so that in the event that your due diligence puts you in a position where you end up having to pay that you have the means to do so. Because if I'm thinking about this from a K-12 standpoint, um, you have sensitive student data. So if you are breached and they say this is the dollar amount to get that data back, you probably need to be paying the ransom because that data is now in the hands of someone. Now, could they still sell the data, still do that? Of course. But, you know, at the end of the day, even though these are bad guys, um, it's not a very good business model to lie to you, take your money, and then still do it anyways. True. Absolutely true. And I think, I think there, are, there are multiple issues here. One, I'm still a proponent of everyone needs cybersecurity insurance. Sure. I, I think it's a given, especially school districts. And oddly enough, I, I thought I saw at one point a number that suggested 
fewer than 50% of school districts are carrying some sort, sort of cybersecurity insurance. And if that's the case, that in itself is alarming. But that being said, so we all know they need policies. I, I think the other conversation about cybersecurity insurance is, is insurance somehow driving ransomware? Is it somehow feeding the beast because it's a, it's another re, uh, reassurance that the ransom's going to be paid out, and in some I, cases, bigger totals. You it's, literally, this is deja vu. So we did an episode with Frank Bauer of Vade Security uh, months back, and the premise of, well, not the premise, but it came up on the show. Is Are our insurance companies and, and the threat actors in cahoots, even unintentionally or subconsciously, and, and as we kind of went through and unraveled it, I, I would say that there is some of that, there's some truth to that because this is a moneymaker on both sides, right? Like, so initially it was like, hey, we'll sell you an insurance policy. We're banking on you not getting breached, but we're selling a lot of policies, a lot of policies. And the reality was that the businesses that are buying these policies are were essentially saying, I've bought insurance, so I don't care about the rest. I don't need to invest in securing my business. I have an insurance policy. And I did an episode specifically on kind of like the myths of cyber insurance not so long ago. And, and our conversation was, look, if I'm an SMB, mid-market maybe, and I need to buy a firewall to increase my security posture or improve my security posture, and it's 50 grand, but my insurance policy is 35 and it's a coverage of a million dollars. Like where am I spending my money? I don't have the 50 grand. Maybe I had the 30 grand. So I'm just going to do without insurance. Terrible model, or sorry, without the firewall. It's a terrible model to have or had in the past, like have in the past. But if you think about it today, because of that mindset, we're now back to you're not getting insurance unless you have the $50,000 firewall. And, and please, uh, audience, don't, don't quote me on the firewall that I'm buying is 50 grand. That's just, that was a number that popped into my head. It's painful at 50 grand. It might be painful at 500. I realize we're talking about school districts here. But the point is, insurance is not an excuse to not secure your business. It is a, um, a backup, if you will, to... I've tried or I've done due diligence or I've given a reasonable effort to secure the environment and I was still breached. But I could prove to anybody that's going to try and not give me the claim that I did everything that was considered humanly possible to do to prevent this from happening. And to your point about scraping for policies, where are you storing your policies that one could easily scrape them? Right. Um. You know, to the insurance industry's credit, and I don't think we're already there, they, they are making progress towards more strict requirements for these policies. And this kind of gets us back to what we were originally uh, talking about here. I, I just worry that there's, there's not the consistency and mutual agreement about, you know, what, what is due diligence? What, what is best practice? Um, how does that vary by if you're a school district versus sure. being an SMB versus being an enterprise level corporation? I, I think that remains to be figured out along the way. 
Well, um, to, to, do you mean like, and I think this is what you mean, but like almost like a standardization. Like if I'm going to have a questionnaire get answered, whether it, it could vary by vertical, I guess, right? Like if we said school districts might have a variation on their questionnaire because we're talking about different data sets too, right? So like exactly. data classification should definitely factor into that application for insurance. At least I think so. Um, but to your to add on to that, I think one of the things that scares me is the unwillingness of insurance providers to send out the questionnaire. Like unless you're applying for insurance with them, they don't want to show you the questionnaire. And I'm thinking, but if I have the questionnaire, I have a better understanding of what I would be expected to do before starting down the path of applying. And more importantly, if I'm going to get quotes from multiple carriers, what if, if they're all asking different sets of questions, do I pick the one that's the strictest or do I pick the one that has the least number of questions and is the easiest to answer? Right. Because I think neither one of them necessarily are a good decision. Right. And, and that's where it feels like the Wild West still here, this lack of transparency and lack of consistency. Right. And I, and I hope we're, we're moving closer and closer to that. My, I'd my like to think so. Probably. Yeah. I will have to be. The but. questionnaires are definitely getting longer. Right. Here's And I wrote three notes down prior to us jumping, jumping on. This is the third thing that I'm tracking as it relates to insurance. And this, this applies to school districts and anyone else. In New York State right now, there's legislation being proposed that would ban ransom payments uh, by any public entity, private entity, uh, either paying the ransom uh, it, um, on their own, right, or the language of the legislation says being paid by someone else on behalf of your organization. So, so the, essentially your insurance. The implication there is that the, not even the insurance provider would be able to pay the ransom. Okay, if that's the case, all bets are off. No, and, and inevitably sure. there are going to be loopholes and the insurance carriers are, will find ways around this legislation. I, I Right, because this hurts both parties, right? Yeah, because... I'm, I'm not even pretending like that's not going to happen, but it's very interesting that we're seeing that. And I, I even sat through a recording of the, the committee uh, in the New York uh, State Senate that was debating this. This is really interesting because right. the the impetus behind this is all right. We're just going to ban ransom payments altogether, so ransomware will go away. Well, and we know that's not the case because we've seen even right. here in Iowa where they had the the blackmailing, where they basically had gotten into the camera system and were telling parents like, "Hey, this is your child, and if you don't give us money, we're going to kill your child." Like. I'm sorry, but the reality is insurance or not, they're probably getting paid. Exactly. So I think that's the other thing to follow here is do you need insurance? Absolutely. You need insurance competing companies with different standards, another issue, but now you've got the politicians at work here trying to wade their way into cybersecurity legislation. And maybe the intent is great. But let's let's talk about the real world implications of ransom payments being outlawed now. Well, think about it logically. Let's think about insurance as a whole. So if you have errors and emissions and general liability coverage, there's all kinds of language in there that says active war, terrorism, you know, in some cases, even natural disasters like a meteor hitting your office. That's not covered under your policy. Right. So I think that 
is this really a stretch to think that we wouldn't have some sort of language that says uh, if this is a, you know, a country uh, that's not part of, you know, the the UN or, or something along those lines that that's considered an act of war and it's direct violence. Yeah, you can't pay. The problem is, and this is the thing that I think challenges all of us, the digital space does not have borders, right? Like there's no like, oh, you're in a different country based on the IP address that you hopped on to get to me. So because you were in that country when you attacked me, don't worry, my insurance will pay out. But versus another IP address, it's like, yep, can't pay that one. And then adding more you know, fuel to the fire, the data classifications of what's being exfiltrated, right? So like when children's lives are at stake, when their identities are at stake, that's a whole lot different than you're able to impersonate me and open a new credit card account. Like the consequences of that are not nearly as dire as having access to a, a kid's medical record um, or, or any number of things that might be. So I, I think to your point, um, intent might be valid. The, the problem is if we put it in a position of, of not paying the ransom, you're starting down a path of there's no good reason to have insurance. And I don't mean just cybersecurity. I mean like across the board, because you've made it to the point where, except for these two scenarios, one of which is like, if you know a lightning strikes the flower that's on the other side of your property, that's the only time we'll pay it. It has to hit that flower and not any other flower on your property. Well, okay, I probably should start gambling. I mean, the, the yeah. higher probability, right? I think, I, so I think to your point, I think there's logic behind the idea of legislation to help, but it should be more along the lines of helping to standardize consistency of, yeah, when I go get car insurance quotes, I may not be an insurance expert, but if I'm looking at, you know, general versus Geico, I can do a pretty good comparison of like which one does or doesn't have the coverage that I'm looking for. And all I've done is look at two different carriers. I didn't have to get, you know, any more depth than that because it, it's in my face that the policy is written clearly enough for me, a non-insurance expert to have a good enough understanding to pick one. Yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> transparency weaves its way through all of this. I mean, transparency uh, from the insurance guideline perspective, one of the things that that we've talked a lot about internally and one of our the things our CEO is, is kind of being the champion for from a policy perspective is where's the transparency on the effectiveness of different security tools and security solutions? Um, a lot of that... A lot of that stuff, uh, a lot of that information is is in the blind. So if right. there's an attack, the postmortem on that attack, a lot of that information is not public. What no. what security protocols were in place for that organization that got hit? What tools were they using? What uh, you know what had been implemented that would allow me to have visibility either as a consumer or potentially as an IT leader that's making those decisions to know this is more effective than this. So, so let me ask you a question on that because I think this you just made something, this is really gets really interesting. So I've, I've been involved in enough uh, ransomware post-breach cases to, to totally agree with what you're talking about. Because obviously one of the things that we first say when someone's breached is don't call me, call your insurance, right? Because generally speaking, the insurance providers that are actively engaged with cyber insurance policies 
have experience with in the event something bad happens, they've got a path, right? Like you call this forensics company, we go and, and it kind of starts the ball rolling to get you back. But the interesting part is now you're hearing and seeing language that says the first phone call you make is to your attorney. Mm -hmm. And then your attorney is going to then set the stage because now all of those conversations are under attorney client privilege. So to your point, now that it's under attorney client privilege, what of that content could even be disclosed without being a breach of the attorney client privilege in the first place? And so I was thinking like, if I was to just, you know, not make this like, Hey, what's beneficial to say PC Matic, knowing that you represent PC Matic, right? Like mm -hmm. what would like, you'd be like, Hey, I'd like to know that it wasn't my product. Right. Right. But I think a higher level version of that was, did they actually have AV? Did they actually have some sort of EDR? And if those questions are answered with yeses, well, then that makes for quite a bit more interesting. How were they exploited? What was the, uh, you know, did they get through through like a, um, a privileged account? Th those types of things, as opposed to a payload that was the user wasn't privileged, but what it did to the machine, uh, all those things come into play. And we have zero visibility on that right now because of, I think, more tied to either attorney-client privilege or an insurance company not wanting to disclose when they've paid on a, a ransom, like, this was stupid and we're going to get hit again, but they pay us a lot of money. I'm not saying that that's happening, but I mean, like, there's all kinds of things that we could speculate about because it's not transparent. Right. It wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting to know that it, X insurance carrier steps forward and says, here are our guidelines for qualifying as uh, for a policy. And that's based on our research into attacks over the past five years and what security protocols were in place and what, right. what weren't. You know, I, I think we're, we're overdue for that level of transparency. We really are for better decision-making across the board. So, so not that we should change the topic of this episode, but what's funny is literally the last three episodes have revolved around um, vulnerability. I shouldn't say the last three, but last several, several episodes have involved the following things. Um, secure, securely configure the environment um, or more specifically like securing the product or service that you're delivering, right? So uh, this week I had an episode or this last week I had a conversation with um, uh, Jim Harriman of Kinetic Technology Group. And our conversation was kind of interesting because I used the example, and again, this was just an example, other products vendors do this, but I was provisioning one of the major uh, mail service solutions. The, you know, it, it was in fact 365, but this could be Google Workspace or some other solution. It, it wasn't because it's them. And it, you go in and you get the security score, right? Like it tells you like, this is the environment. And I was doing this from a compliance standpoint for a client. And as I was going through it, what I found interesting was the score was like, I don't remember the exact number, but it was so many points out of so many points. And you're like, wow, so I've got points done already. That's moving me towards secure. So I did the export of like, what are the remediations that need to be done? And what was interesting is all the points that I had scored were like already provided because I stood up the tenant and did the security default checkbox or toggle. And so basically it was telling me that Microsoft was responsible and had done those first 22 things or whatever it was. Well, then you look closer and it's like the rest of them are my responsibility. And so what has sort of prompted the conversation that we had this last week was with regards to vendors, products, and services, then the, the supply chain of me as an MSP per se, and then client facing, 
what are the responsibilities and where do those lines or those blurry lines get defined so that when someone says, wait, I thought you were doing that. I thought, I thought we, we bought Microsoft, we bought Google, we bought one of these big, you know, what do you mean they didn't secure it hundred percent? it's like, well, let's, let's go with an education component here. Largely as consumers, we want convenience and we want it quick, right? We convenient, we want it to be easy enough to use that I don't have to be a rocket scientist, put it in. We want it to be extremely fast and we want it for cheap. What was it they you want? Um, the, the three the three pillars of I want it, I want good quality, I want it quickly, and I want it cheap. Well, you can't have all three of those things, right? You get two out of three, maybe. So, anyways, the the more we talk about this, and cyber insurance is a good example of, of what are we answering questions about, uh, I think largely comes back to a burden of responsibility or at least accountability on can we show, can we prove that the implementation to prevent these things from happening, where we have control, the parts that we have control over are actually being done and done well. And I believe that there's a, not that this is giving anybody a, an out, like I'm not trying to give an MSP an out, but I think about vendor onboarding me. If, if, I, if I buy something from a vendor, what does that onboarding process actually look like right so uh you know do they walk me through standing up the product uh infrastructure do they walk me through standing it up for the first customer do they they go all the way through it with me and say hey now based on what we've just done this should be your template for how you would do this for all of your clients going forward and and this is not i'm not saying this to say this is what it should be i'm just saying like hypothetically speaking because the flip side is when MSPs do client onboarding, it is drastically different from how a vendor gets onboarded or how a vendor onboards, say an MSP or a school district or, or whoever it might be before it gets delivered to the end user, right? So I think that there's a big component there that has to change. And that is, there is no more, we just sell you a product um, until you invest in getting trained on delivering the product. Because breaches happen. And we all know at this point that 80% of what we're dealing with could be avoided uh, if, if the user element had been removed from the equation. Yet, by and large, vendor through the supply chain to the customer, we haven't done the pieces that prevent the ability from the user from just making a bad decision that allows that door to just be open because whether it was the vendor or the MSP, there was never a lock put on the door. Yeah, and, and ultimately, and you, you kind of alluded to this, this is going to extend legal li liability, whether it's lawsuits, we've already seen them aimed at MSPs, aimed at whatever organization was breached, if it happens to be a school district and their right. student data, there, there, there's a lot to be unpacked there, and the, those lines are, are blurred. I, I think interesting to know, again, going back to legislation, and I know right here in the state of Iowa, it's already in the works, is legislation that says, as an organization, if you've done your due diligence to try to follow, let's say, NIST framework to some degree, you potentially have some, some legal protection right? Um, if you can show that you've done that due diligence. Now, Several other states open, have done that too as yeah, well. It, to, to me, there are a lot of questions that remain about what exactly qualifies as due diligence and you know of the 
you know, go ahead and grab the NIST framework and where well, let's pretend let's pretend that we to, have the answer. Let's pretend we have the answer. So let's just say it's the CIS framework or NIST NIST framework. Yep. If you were to have that third party audited to say that I have aligned our organization in satisfying these controls against this data, these data classifications, that makes perfect sense. But if you were to say like, because you've said that your organization's done due diligence and you've said that you have aligned with CIS, well, that's like me saying that I like to walk on the left side of the street and so the right side of the street. And until you actually go and observe me, you would have no idea which side of the street I might be walking on. Right, without, and this is one of the things that, and I, I don't pretend to completely understand CMMC, but the way that that's been turned we don't upside either. down. Well, yeah, even people that claim to be the experts don't really know is that that flip from um, some sort of third-party validation or third-party audit of, yeah, assessor of your or posture audit, yeah. versus self-attestation. So to your point, I can tell you all day long, yeah, I, I follow the NIST guidelines. Sure, I checked this box. Right. Now now I'm legally protected. There, there has to be some teeth somewhere along the way. And I think some of that's yet to be determined. The way I understand some of this legislation's in place, there are going to be some sort of governing body that takes a look at how this is validated. Well, just like when you get pulled over, right? When the officer says, do you know how fast you're going? <laughs> I mean, in my head, I want to go, uh, absolutely not. But I figure, you know, because you pulled me over, right? <laughs> like that would probably not end well. Either I'm getting a really big ticket or he's probably asking me to step out of the car. I also know that you shouldn't say things like, because you smell donuts on my breath. Like, I mean, those are bad things to say. But what I can tell you is we all would voluntarily say, we, even if it's loosely, we follow the road rules, right? Sure. If it says 55, maybe our maybe our margin of error is plus plus of five. But I mean, like we generally speaking, when you go out on the road, you're not expecting to have someone driving on the wrong side of the road. None of us are, right? right. Because that doesn't end well for really anybody involved in that situation. So I think that same thing is true with the the idea that legislation could get passed to say, hey, if your organization aligns with one of these several frameworks and you can definitively prove that, that should be what we're looking for. Because the reality is if they can prove it, that's that's a posture of security maturity that we all are sort of like say the utopia in the future, as opposed to the dystopian current situation we're in is, is achievable. And then we go to, it's not a question of whether or not they exfiltrate data that finds my insurance policy is that they no longer are successful at exfiltrating data on a frequency that they have been. And I think that's where we get to, the, you don't have to ban paying the, the ransom. It's that no one's getting breached anymore would be the ultimate end result is that it's too difficult. The timetable to get into your environment is so significant that I have to move on to the, the easier target. And once there's no more easy targets and the business model is very expensive, then I think we can see a huge decline in, in ransoms. It, that, that's what it's going to take. Every presentation I've ever done on ransomware, I say this is all fueled by money. This is now a viable business model if I'm a ransomware gang. Until and they're nice that... people. <laughs> sure. I've dealt and with until... them like... Please don't yell or we will increase the fee we're charging. And it's yes. like, okay, I will use my whisper voice. And, and until that changes, until it's no longer a viable business model, this is, this is going to continue. So to your point, that's, that's what changes this. This is 
this is where the, the shift in the tipping point will be, but not until then. Well, and what's a viable business model? Because the reality is, if we go back in time, the fact that the Nigerian Prince scam that used to come through via the fax machine is still alive and well, tells me that while we may not solve the problem, we should at least be able to reduce it being on so front and center on everybody's TV screen in the, you know, uh, five o'clock news hour if if it's been moved to page six of the newspaper that's i think that in and of itself would be an achievement but right now everything is splashing the front page because it is that horrendous as to what's happening yeah well, Corey, the, go ahead yeah, it, nope, go ahead all good the thing i was going to wrap up with chris is our friend scott agenbaum who scott does full transparency does a lot of uh, great things in consulting with pc matic but one of the things he talks about when he, and this Scott, for those that don't know, spent 30 years in the FBI, deeply involved in cybercrime and uh, working out of the, the Nashville office. One of the things he talks about is the, the ransomware prevention talk that he was doing five, six plus years ago and the business email compromise prevention talk he was doing five, yeah. six years ago. Nothing has, has changed. He, right. he could still go out and give the same exact presentation because unfortunately people still aren't doing what they need to do to prevent these things from happening to begin with. So. It's not just prevent. They're also throwing up roadblocks. So I have, I, I, I've heard Scott speak and, and I, and I totally agree with you. And it's funny. I had, um, uh, Marcus, uh, totally drawn a blank on his last name. He was a co-founder of Tenable. Uh, he wrote the book, The Myth of uh, Cybersecurity. And one of the things he said was, if, if we could have the authority to tell marketing or operations that no, you can't have that directory on the public facing website because it's convenient for you, he goes, we would have a whole lot less problems with trying to secure things. And, and I think the reality is we're starting to see a shift finally where even if you went to Walmart or Target or Best Buy, I don't care which store it is because they all sell these electronics. You go in there, for the most part, they're relatively easy to plug in, turn on and get it to do something in the, in the realm of what you wanted. But for the most part today versus say five years ago, the levels of security in those products, if you follow the wizard and followed what it's recommending is actually a relatively secure configuration versus I remember when I first did my first wireless setup back in 2000, I think it was, I had to use command line. There was no GUI interface. We all type wrong. We all type bad, right? Like there's no perfect typist out there that I know of when you're using command line. And, you know, what things was I introducing into my home office on something that was like no GUI, but now I can talk to wirelessly instead of plugging in an ethernet cable. Um, that became a very easy thing to do, right? We created the GUI wizards. You could literally put an app on a device and it would detect what you had plugged in and you didn't even have to go find it. We are now back to, even on the consumer side, starting to see <clears throat> some levels of security being baked in on behalf of or in, in efforts to prevent because we know that people are still going to make decisions that align with emotional convenience or just convenience in general. You know, I got to have it now. So yeah, I think all of those things are true. And yeah, for those of you listening, if you haven't, um, you should check out, he has a book on Amazon and I, do, what, do you remember what the title is, Scott, or for Scott's book? 
I, I believe, you know what, Scott's going to kill me for not knowing this off the top, top of my head, but I believe it's the secret to cybersecurity. That, no, you're right. I, I knew cybersecurity was in the name. I couldn't remember if it came before or after secret. Yes, yeah, secret to cybersecurity. Yeah. And what's really funny about the book, not that the book is funny, but every book I have read that catered to SMB to enterprise is always talking about how the organizations can solve cybersecurity problems. This book is about individual me and you addressing our own part of the cybersecurity problem, which in, in my opinion, if we can address that, we address it at the corporate level anyways. Absolutely. Because I can't, I, it's, it, it, this, is, this is what I would leave it with. And this is what I run into a lot. If I secure and take care of what I have personally, my bank accounts, my, my kids, and, and I'm trying to make a reasonable effort to secure them from being compromised, then I will start applying that logic at work. Because right now, if our approach is the other side, we all are going to say this. Um, that's not my job. We have a department that does that. We have a guy that does that or a girl or who, I mean, like there's somebody else's responsibility. But when we go home, no one says that. I, I don't go home and say, oh yeah, my 14 year old son, that's his job. He takes care of all of our cybersecurity needs. No. And I'd be an idiot if I said, I don't sit down with my kids periodically and actually step through like, here's why you should not be using those apps. Here's why. And it's not, you're grounded because you were on Snapchat. It's like, do you understand the ramifications of using apps like that without understanding the privacy policy behind it? But dad, it's like, then they go and do it. And they're like, dad, did you know? Like, yes, I did. That's why I didn't want you to use it. Um, and if you're going to use it, what, what tools are you going to put in place to at least protect yourself as much as you can if you insist on using that application. The solutions are more simple than we sometimes realize, Chris. We are the solution to this problem. You got it. All right, Corey. Hey, it has been great as always for those of you listening. Thanks and have a great week.